Good morning, and before we start with this interview, I've got to give you a new update on the Missouri Music Podcast, and I'm going to start by playing the open done by Julie Blue. It's very wonderful, and you definitely need to hear it, and then we'll start with the interview, DellWileyShow.com. Because there was something in the water in Springfield, Missouri. Hey, don't forget me. I'm Brenda Lee, and we're all going to have fun tonight on Ozark Jubilee. The Missouri Music Podcast, hosted by music fan and the founder of Slewfit Records, Mr. Dale Wiley. I love that open. And so now as we start to design what's going to become the Missouri Music Podcast, I want to go back to the first interview I ever did with Brian Hinneman of the Bottle Rockets in the beginning of 2016. I obviously didn't know what I was doing. I didn't even turn the beep off. But Brian was an awesome guest, and I was so happy to have him on. I've been a fan of his for many years. And so listen now, DaleWileyShow.com. Hello, hello. Hello, can you hear me now? Yes. Okay, that's great. I am trying this for the first time and so after a little while I may actually disconnect the call and just make sure that it's all being taped accordingly and then call you back if there's anything more we need to talk about but for right now um, we'll just kind of start in a second and I've got a few things I want to go over with you that was the beep that we needed to hear so Uh Um, so all right well um in about three seconds, then I'll um, I'll start. All right. <clears throat> so um, here with Brian Henneman, he of the Bottle Rockets and various other uh, types of musical fame and fortune, and uh, <laughs> glad to have you here, Brian. Ah, good to be here. So um, when I wanted to talk a little bit about you growing up. Um, kind of the musical influences. Uh, you talked a little bit about that when you had the interview with PBS. What what were kind of your um, first introductions into music? Hmm, I'm trying to think of what the very earliest would be. The earliest, earliest, earliest. Well, let me think about that. I'm going. I'm, I'm going. I'm, I'm going way back now. So I'm trying to think. I'm a little kid. I'm a little kid, and something made me excited about music. What would it have been? Well, I guess probably. I mean, my we had a record player in the house, and we didn't play a lot of records in the house. But my mom had the the Glenn Campbell Wichita Lineman record, and I pretty much learned how to operate the record player with that record. So. 
I was sort of like, you know, and and I liked it. You know, it was like I played it because I liked it. So I guess maybe that was my earliest, earliest, earliest probably thing that made me, like, interested in music. And then my sister actually left me a couple records when she went to uh, she went to Honduras and was doing some sort of missionary work there or something. And she when when she left, she left me uh Sergeant Pepper's Lonely Hearts Club band and she left uh Hard Days Night soundtrack. So then now I, I had Glenn Campbell and two Beatles records. <laughs> And so that that would have been like the very earliest starts of it. Then there was like, oh, did you go ahead. did your parents listen to music? The, what what My, just just really just the the kitchen table radio, which was pretty much tuned to to KJCS, the local radio station that played nothing but country music. And and so you know I was a little kid and, and didn't really understand that. My parents were listening to it or whatever, so. I was more interested in the Glenn Campbell record than what was coming off the, the radio in the kitchen. And uh, somehow, I don't know why, but that, again, probably because I was just playing with the record player successfully. And then the Beatles, I liked that. And then that, that would have taken me up to probably, God, what what year did, did uh, the song that really, the one that really, bam, made me want to just do something with music was, was Bad Finger. No matter what you want, when that came out, I thought that was the Beatles. You know, I'm a little oh, yeah. kid. You know, and so I hear, and, you know, anything that sounded good to me, I thought was the Beatles. So anyway, that song made me made me go crazy. I actually built myself a little fake guitar with a like a uh, wrapping paper tube, and cut some little shape out of cardboard. And uh, and by this time, you know, we're getting on to where I could. Uh, there were like cassette players coming in around that time. And so I somehow managed to record that on a cassette player off the radio. And they weren't like built into the radio yet. You know, you had a cassette player and then you, your cassette recorder and then you had the radio and, and I would sit up and wait for it to come on. So then, so that was like the real serious, like, whoa, you know, I want to, I want to do this. I, I don't even know that I ever even knew it wasn't the Beatles like, Ever back then, <laughs> and and you know, and then it, then, then I started. Then I just it was, and from hearing that on the radio, I I took over the radio. I was getting old enough. I probably I was probably about ten at this time. Uh-huh. So so that would have put you know seventy seventy one. That's probably about what time that song came out. I'm thinking somewhere right, right around there. Yeah. And so then now my parents didn't really care because they kind of only listened to the radio just because. They weren't really like loyal devotees of country music. So then uh, I took over the radio. You know, it was my radio now. And I would put it on, what was the station back then that I was listening to? It was probably was like, it might have still been KXOK. I mean, it was like coming out of St. Louis. And anyway, it was like a pop music station. And I started listening to that. And that's whenever I started like, like liking all kinds of new stuff. You know, like like I first heard Carol Carol King on there, and I was like, I loved her. She was like my first radio love. You know, so I'm you know like a little kid and 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 just discovering all sorts of things at that time. And it wasn't long after that that I started to like buy my first records. You know, I'm I'm going out to the grocery store where you used to buy them in those days, 
And you know, back then, like albums were like three ninety eight, and you know, I, I would like get my mom to buy me a record when we would go to the store. Actually, you know what? Now that I think of that, I did have a, a record before that, and that I was littler than than that. The first record I ever got was at the grocery store. See, I'm it's so long ago. I'm getting the, the timing all screwed up. So this was this was this was probably right after the. Uh, Wichita lineman phase, and probably during the Beatles phase that we went to the grocery store, and the first record I ever got was, I just picked it for the album cover and the title of it. I got Paul Revere and the Raiders, Something Happening. Oh, wow. Yeah, I didn't know what I was doing. I was a little kid. I I was probably eight years old then, you know, seven years old, even younger than that. Yeah. But that was 1968, that album. So Uh I got that and listened to, I remember I was having a hard time at the check, at the record stand between that and Gary Puckett and the Union <laughs> You chose correctly. <laughs> I think I did. It was a lucky choice. So actually yeah. that was that was my first record. That's the only record I had as a little kid. I had that and then Mom's record and then my sister left me the two Beatles record. And that was it. But anyway now that so now that that's out of the way, then I started buying albums, you know, later. Well I, you know, I'm probably eleven or twelve now. So it would have been, we would have been into the 70s, early 70s by now. And I remember the very first record I ever bought at the grocery store, I got when I was like, you know, becoming like a little music fan and wanting to play guitar and all that good stuff. So the first one I got was Led Zeppelin II, which was a brand new album then. And I just, for some reason, you know, I'm a kid, I'm just picking up, I don't know this stuff. You know, I'm in Crystal City, Missouri. We, I didn't hear that stuff. We didn't really have a radio that would pick up FM very good down there. So I'm just hearing AM radio. And so I, I bought that album, and I brought it home, and I hated it. <laughs> I was like, oh, well, you know, I'm a kid. I feel like I don't want to hear Led You don't want to hear Led Zeppelin when you're 11 years old or whatever I was at that time. Exactly. It's like that is not, that's not for you. So I was like really, really burned by my first album buying experience and I thought well I better choose wisely next time I get to get another one and so the next time we went to the store I'm still kind of like looking through and seeing what you know looks like I might like it and I got Black Sabbath Paranoid (laughs) but I loved that one that one I would play like over and over and over so you know that 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 you know and that record if I think about it now that is way better for a kid you know it's like a, a little kid is going to find like some kind of like you know spooky movie science fiction kind of thing in there like i had no idea what sweet leaf was about <laughs> but it sounded cool you know the singer sounded cool the guitar sounded scary it was like you know led zeppelin was like blues influence and stuff i was not way not ready for that at that time right and so yeah so and yeah so uh, when you started yeah. to get a little older um, it looks like the kinds of things that you're referring to on a regular basis are either uh, – I, I mean, they, they definitely scan or span both sides of the equation. You've got things like Leonard Skinner and Neil Young, but then you've also got Waylon Jennings and, and you know, those sorts of things too. I mean, you you definitely moved pretty fluidly across that line. Would you say that? Yeah, right? well, what – what it was, I was pretty exclusively. Well, you know what? It was when when I was young, I didn't know what I was doing. I was buying records because I liked the covers, or I had heard of the name somehow, or whatever. 
the first record I ever bought fully knowing what I was going to buy was Leonard Skinner's Second Helping. Okay. So that was that was the first record I had heard the songs on the radio. I wanted to have those songs for my own and I set out to go get those songs. So that was my first like like informed purchase was that one. And you know, I, I stuck with Skinner and and then, you know, through friends by this time you're in school and, and you know, you got the peer pressure and you're getting influenced by your your friends at school that, that know stuff you don't know. And I got into, you know, like, like ZZ Top that way. I didn't really understand them, but I, I, I liked them anyway. So I got into, you know, and, and stuff like that was all going on. And, I, you know, Rush, I got into Rush when I was, like, getting closer to, you know, like 14 or, you know, stuff that a young teen would, like, really be digging on. Right. And then, and then I, you know, it was pretty much, but, but what was happening now as I was ramping that stuff up, I wasn't really listening to any country at that point. It was, you know, other than peripherally on the radio station in the kitchen if my dad would have it on, or watching Hee Haw. I loved Hee Haw when I was a kid. So, so you know, it was more of a TV show thing than it was like a musical choice. But I, I loved the show, loved Buck Owens. I thought he was great. So it's kind of like everything was like, at the time I was really getting into Rush and, and I was into Heart really big, you know, stuff like right. that. But I was also like really wanting to learn how to play the guitar at this time. So I'm getting to be like a middle teenager now, probably 15, and I really want to know how to do this. And and I had a guitar and was really trying to learn, but all these bands I liked, I couldn't possibly play like that. You know, it's like it was not even possible. You know, uh-huh. I, I was like, it was like I can't even play a G chord, and it's like I'm supposed to like know how to do this, and it was very discouraging. Or whatever, and so I was like, I didn't know if this guitar thing was going to work out, and then lo and behold, the savior came, was punk rock came to America, uh, you know? Okay. Right. It was like right when I needed it most. It was like, <laughs> you know, I was I was watching Don Kirshner's rock concert and saw the Ramones, and, right. and, I, and, and I was like, no, wait a minute, you know, it's like, yeah, they might be strumming fast, but their hands aren't moving real fast around the neck. And it sounds like I might could be able to learn that. And so that kind of got me, gave me some hope. And, you know, and, and I felt like I could maybe learn how to do that. And so punk rock kind of like saved the day when that happened, which I would have been 15, 15, probably 16 when that happened. And I still didn't have a good guitar. I just had an acoustic guitar and, and, was doing the best I could with it. And then it was around, actually it was 1978, I think, I got my first like good electric guitar, Fender Stratocaster, bought it out of the trade in times. But at this time, I was wanting to be a bass player because the guitar was kind of like, like throwing me. You know, I had an acoustic, it was hard to play. I thought if I played bass, it would be one note at a time and it would be easier. And I also was just like completely in love with Phil Lynott from Thin Lizzy. Okay. Right. So I thought, I'll get a bass like that. And then our local music store had a black Fender Precision bass just like his. It was $425, brand new. And I, like, saved up and saved up and saved up. And I was going to go get that bass. And the day I was going to go get that bass, I looked in the trade and ties, and they had a Fender Stratocaster for 275 bucks. So then all of a sudden, I'm at the crossroads. It's like, if I go get that bass, I won't have an amp. But if I get this guitar, I could get an amp because I have enough money left over <laughs> so that, so that's how I became a guitar player was was just because of that simply like that. And did then you, you know, it, did you pick it up pretty quick after you you got your Strat? 
I did, actually. It was so much easier to play than the acoustic guitar. And the amp I got was like this monster. It was like I went to the Roberts Music and Festus. They had two used amps for the amount of money I had. One was a little 50-watt Marshall combo amp with two 12s, and it was like the Baby Poop Brown Tolex uh, on it, which is right. a fantastic amp. But right next to it was this TV musician, 210 watts, big as a refrigerator. And so I'm, a, you know, I'm thinking... I could get that little Marshall there, or I could get this big giant TV for the same money. So of course I got the big giant TV, right? Which which had fuzz and distortion in it. So I would, you know, I got that home. I could turn the fuzz and the distortion up, and just play bar chords. And it was real easy to like start to sound like rock and roll. So the first, I, I always remember the first song I figured out with bar chords on that guitar through that amp was "Fool for the City" by Foghat. Oh wow. Yeah, yeah. So it was like it was like magic when I figured that out. And so I would just sit in my bedroom and play that like over and over and over again. And I'm sure my parents were going nuts, but, but it was the only thing I knew. Right. But then I started, you know, figuring out how to move the bar chords around. And then I started figuring out like the easier cheap trick songs like Southern Girls and stuff like that. And so, yeah, I did progress pretty quickly through that point. And, uh, and so that would have taken me up till... Mm, what I, I probably would have been goofing around in that way with no real bands or anything till late seventies, you know, something like that. And uh, it wasn't long after that we got our first little band together. Was that the just blues was, or was this? That crazy? was the. It, 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 we had like a little. It was me and Bob Parr had a little. We would make music in his his room, you know, just recording little goofy things. But it turned into the Blue Moons. It came out of that. And so that would have been the first band. And with my little rudimentary bar chords, we were actually able to do pretty much. You know, we, we could we could do like Get Off My Cloud and, and Do Why Diddy Diddy and stuff like that. Uh-huh. Did that get you some gigs around town? It did. It did. It was, you know, we would play it like we actually played at Caveland. We got with that Caveland was <laughs> open then. The, the skating rink in a cave. Uh-huh. So, yeah, we got some gigs there. We started playing, like, at high schools and talent shows, and we played a gig in the in the Crystal City Park one time. So, yeah, we got some little gigs. And then we actually finally got some gigs in St. Louis. It was like we got a gig, and it was uh, – I'm trying to remember how we got this. No, I know how we got this gig. I take that back. This came from Farmington, Missouri. We got a gig in Farmington with Charlie Langrere. Okay. And he he was like punk rock guy from St. Louis. And don't uh -huh. ask me how he got that gig, but we opened for him at that gig. <laughs> and we became we became friends that night and then he got us to open for him on Christmas night in St. Louis one time. That was our first gig into St. Louis. Uh -huh. Which we opened with another band on that bill was Joe Camel and the Caucasians. Okay. Uh -huh. So it was us three bands. And then through that, Joe Camel got us a gig over in Belleville with a band called The Primitives. Okay. All right. Okay. So this well, is how that all hooked up. So, so all, now all country fans need to perk up at that name. Yeah, yeah. So it's like <laughs> so we, we go we go from little high school gigs to a gig with Charlie Langrayer in Farmington, Missouri, to a gig with Charlie in St. Louis. And then Joe Camel, who was on that bill, got us a gig with him and the Primitives at the Liederkranz in Millstadt, Illinois. Well, the Primitives were, of course, Jeff Tweedy, Jay Farrar, Jay's brother, and, and, and Mike on drums. Right. So that was the first time we met them. And we actually ended up doing 
quite a few of those leader crowns gigs together. You know, it was like that, uh-huh. for some for some reason we hit it off and we would always open for them and that was it. And then our, both our bands broke up. It was like Blue Moons, our singer left, and and we lost track of those guys or whatever, you know. And then some after our singer left, it was like we forged ahead. I I became the singer. Bob Parr stayed, remained on bass. Mark was still playing drums. We got Bob's little brother Tom to play guitar, and then we changed the name of the band to Chicken Truck because 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 what happened at this point now it's eighties, and, right. and during the eighties is when MTV came around, hair metal came around. It was all Thompson Twins time. It was it was it was like all that. I hated everything that I was hearing. <laughs> so that's that's when I switched to country. Okay. It was uh-huh. it was to get away from from that stuff that I went I went and started listening to country music and and I the first person I loved in country music was John Anderson right and he had and you know he had the song swinging at the time but then right. I started buying his records and and on one of his records he had a song called Chicken Truck and and he wrote that one and so that's why we named our band after him because we were going to be a country band and uh-huh. so we named the band after the song he wrote and. Uh, once again, we're playing gigs in Festus, and we were trying to be really cool. You know, I was getting pretty good on guitar at this time. So we were, like, doing all the cool stuff, you know, because through John Anderson, I started working backwards, getting into Merle Haggard, Waylon Jennings, you know, just it was an endless, bottomless pit of discovery. Right. Mm-hmm. And and so we were trying to do all that stuff, but it's the 80s now, and we're down in Festus trying to play country gigs, and those people didn't want to hear any of that. You know, <laughs> they, they wanted to hear they wanted to hear what was ever the country hits at that time, and I remember – the big one at that time was Dan Seals. I want to bop with you, baby, all night. And we were like, we are not playing that song. That's horrible. We're not going to do it. So we were really unpopular down there. Like, like nobody. We we would play. We would get gigs, but nobody would like us. And it was, it was, it was kind of a failure. And so, but then I just happened to be looking at the St. Louis Post Dispatch, and there was an article in the Post Dispatch. Of, you know, they had they used to have like a little musical feature, you know, in the entertainment section of like, you know, this is what's happening around town. And all of a sudden, we see this band is going to be playing at Cicero. It's called Uncle Tupelo. Right. And we look, and it's it's the guys from the Primitives. Uh-huh. We're like, hey, hey, it's those guys. We gotta go <laughs> see those guys. You know, hadn't seen them for for a while. And so we went up and saw them, and and. They pretty much blew us away. You know, it was kind of like we we went up and, and it was like, holy cow! It's it was like, man, we're doing like this country stuff, and look at the way they're doing it. It's like this is this is so, and we were so frustrated. But meeting those guys, they wanted to, you know, of course, we got right back together. And they said, you know, we got a gig opening for them in St. Louis, and right. but we realized that our little thing wasn't going to fly with that. So that's whenever we just just decided that okay, we're going to do what we're doing. But we're going to do it like really loud. <laughs> <laughs> well, so when um, so when Uncle Tupelo would have been playing, was it Cicero's where they were playing? Yeah, pretty much, pretty much Cicero's and occasionally off Broadway, and that was that was about the two places that would have bands, you know, like that. <laughs> so that would have been what eighty eight, maybe what? Yeah, what probably probably eighty eight. I'm thinking, yeah, because eighty seven, I we were still playing country down there. So yeah, it, it had to be '88. Uh huh. And so then, um, when when all of that started to happen, um, you know, Chicken Truck 
got some good press for a a little cassette that you guys put out. Um, why didn't Chicken Truck take off any more than it did? Well, because Bob, our bass player, was just he, he just would not travel. I mean, he 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 did not want to do that in any way. You know, he wanted to just play play one gig a month at Cicero's, and we would make it into an event. You know, he we would plan the whole month on how to make the show crazier than the time before. And then we'd do that, and as soon as that was over, we'd start scheming on how to make it crazier and crazier and crazier. And and that's all he, you know, he had a job. He was, like, a, like studying to be a paramedic at that time, and, and it was like he was just not going to do it. He was not going on the road. So we were pretty much, you know, held to St. Louis with that. And uh, And then what happened during this time was Uncle Tupelo got their first record deal. Okay, right. on Rock Rockville Records, right? Which that like really made me frustrated. You know, it's like okay, these guys are going ahead and they're doing this, and Bob doesn't want to do this, and I sort of like put the ultimatum down. It's like we have to do this, or there's no sense in keeping doing this, and so Bob just left. You know, he quit, and then we thought, well, that's the end of that, you know, so what? But then being friends with the Uncle Tupelo guys, they were going on the road for the first time, and they just asked if I wanted to come along. So right. that's how, that yeah, that's how I sort of fell into, like, being their extra guy. You know, it was just right. like I didn't have a band anymore. They were doing what I wanted to do. It's like they're going, and they asked me if I want to go, so I'll go. And, and I, at first I did it for fun and then I actually started like actually doing a little work and then I started getting a little pay for it and you know and it was, I actually became like a an actual kind of dude for them you know and that that lasted right. for from 90 till 93 that's how right. long I did that with them right now in the meantime you were asked to do uh the Indianapolis single and how did that right that came about through Jeff Pakman who who was their guy at Rockville Records and he just wanted to do a record with me, you know. It's just because he had met me while I was out on the East Coast doing Uncle Tupelo stuff with them. And he just, you know, said, you know, I would love to do this. I remember we were sitting in some Indian restaurant in New York City. And he uh-huh. said, you know, I, I would love to make a, a 45, you know, if you want to do it. And I thought, sure, why not? So I got Mark to play drums. Mark was still in town at that time. And then I got Jay and Jeff to play on it. And that, and we just made it for Rockville Records, and he put it out, and and that was kind of all there was to it, you know. It was it was just sort of like a little thing. Just he wanted to do it, and uh, so we did it. it. It really didn't have much intention behind it, but uh, that's how it happened. But you already had a lot of the songs that would appear not only on the first album but on the second album as well. Yeah, right. Yeah, they were all on. A, a, they were all Chicken Truck songs. Right. A lot of them were. Yeah. Uh-huh. Yeah, because we did. You know, we had a we wrote a lot of songs when we were when we had that band going. Uh-huh. So you so, know, I wrote I wrote some, Bob wrote some, or Tom Parr wrote some. We so we yeah we stockpiled a bunch of stuff that we actually used later. Right now, when did um, you had an English teacher who was very influential, uh, or I guess the other guys did? You just knew him, is that right? Right, exactly. It was he was their English teacher, Scott Taylor. Uh-huh. And he he actually was the first guy that encouraged the Blue Moons to to write our own songs, uh-huh. because he he was he was Scott Summers our singer he was his teacher 
and he was Mark's teacher. But at the first in the Blue Moons, Mark wasn't in it. Scott Taylor is the guy that hooked us up with Mark, actually, right. when the drummer we had left. Uh-huh. And so, so yeah, Scott Taylor was all about, you know, you know, you guys should should write some songs. You know, you should you should do that if you want to be a band. You should make up your own stuff. And we did. So yeah, he's he's been around for a, forever. You know, kind of like since since I first came learned to play guitar and first started playing music with other guys, he just happened to be there, and I met him through the other guys because he was their school teacher. And the only well, reason the reason that he hooked up with Scott Summers and Bob Parr was they were in the hallway talking about the Ramones, okay? <laughs> and and because we all kind of discovered that stuff at the same time, and Scott Taylor had just, just come there from Troy, Illinois, and he was a big record geek, you know? He was like a total record collector, uh-huh. and we didn't know anybody like that. And he, was, he about fell out of his chair when he heard two kids from Festus, Missouri, talking about the Ramones, you know? <laughs> so... So that's how that that thing met up, and so yeah, Scott's uh, been around since since day one of the very first band, really. Now, isn't it true that this the newest record is the only one he hasn't written on? Is that right? That's right. That's right. Very first one. He had no songs for us this time. Huh. Every, uh, everybody slows down. <laughs> that's not a permanent thing, though. You hope you'll have some more Scott right. in the future. Is that right? Yep. Oh yeah. <laughs> well, so when you were out on the road with Uncle Tupelo, I, say from ninety to ninety-three, what did you learn? What did I learn? I learned how to go on the road. It was that was that's, I learned everything there. How to do things inexpensively, you know. How to you know ration your food. You know, <laughs> it was like yeah. how to uh, how you know just basically everything. How to how to go from town to town. How to you know friggin keep it keep it up i unfortunately i also learned how to drink liquor really hard which that that came that 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 came back to haunt me later but yeah it was basically the rules of the road how to how to get from one place to place you know back in those days there were no cell phones you know we were using Rand mcnally and 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 pay phones you know to figure out where the heck we were going yeah and yeah so yeah, I learned in the primitive days, the, the ancient days of touring. Well, um, when when that started, when they started to have some success, um, did you see? I mean, was there what happened there? Anyone that would have described their relationship in the early days would have talked about how loving and great things were, and then all of, all of a sudden, kaput. Um, well, you know what? I I wasn't around. In the in the what was reportedly the worst days, uh-huh. because because what happened was I was with them up through '93, and my last gig with them was Ken Coomer's first gig with them. Okay, and it, right. it was at Mount it was at Mountain Stage in Charleston, West Virginia. Okay, and I played. Yeah. It was when uh, March 16th through 20th was out, and I uh-huh. played mandolin at, and right. with them. I was actually playing with them at that time. Uh-huh. And so they had Mike had left the band, and then uh, they had Bill oh, Belzer for a while. <laughs> Wasn't that what he was called? Whorehouse Bill. Yes. <laughs> yeah. So they had Bill Belzer for a while, and then 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 Bill was gone, and then Ken came, and so it was Ken. We all flew out there together. It was it was it was Ken's first gig and my last gig because what happened was before that was whenever I recorded 
the demo stuff with those guys. Right. It was like, you know, just, just for fun, just the, the fun demos when they were recording their second album. Uh-huh. And, uh, and that's what Tony, their manager, Tony Margarita, he, he actually got me a record deal from those demos. I wasn't looking for one. I was, you know, perfectly happy being their, their guy. You know, I, I had no problems with that. I was getting paid. I was traveling. I was getting to play every night. You know, it was, it was great. Right. And, uh, so, I was, but he got me a record deal and I had to throw a band back together, you know, just to, just to make this record. It was, it was sort of a, a, a pain in the ass because things were starting to get better for those guys. You know, right. it was like things were picking up. It was starting to ramp upwards. Things were getting easier. We were getting hotel rooms. You know, it was like everything was like getting better. I was getting paid better. It was things were looking good. But now I got this band thing to deal with. So and that was coming up. That was 1993. And this this gig I did with Ken was in January of 93. And then we were set to record our first album in March of 93. So uh-huh. basically, I had to leave, like leave them when things started getting good, and then go right back down to the bottom again. <laughs> But I knew how to do it, you know. It was like I just, I just had all that training, so it was, it was kind of exciting, you know. It was like, okay, well, we'll do this on our own. Why not? And we got the band back together. It was like Mark joined right back up. He was like this, this, this joined instantly. Tom Parr sort of talked his way into the band again, you know. It was like, it was like he he got back in, and then Jeff Tweedy found us our bass player, Tom Ray. He he found him in in Chicago. He he was playing with Poi Dog Pondering at that time, uh-huh. and uh, we threw it together real fast and made the first album, and and off we went. Now that first album, that is, I was listening to that. That is some really unusual material for that sort of album in, in terms of lyrically, <laughs> especially. Oh. And I mean, it's great and it's perfect, and I. I like it as much as I love any of your albums, but that's some different subject material for a brand new band to be taken on. Don't, I mean, looking yeah. back on it, don't you think that? Uh, probably. You know, I, I never really thought about it. You know, it was just sort of like a, just, I, I don't know. You know, I don't know what I was thinking about. That, that whole record was made in a panic, you know, <laughs> it was like, it was like we we didn't we, we hadn't even played a gig before we recorded that. It was like uh-huh. we had one book, but it got snowed out that winter. Uh huh. So I, that was I, like our our yeah our first function as a band was was recording that album. Uh-huh. And when we got we got down there, we didn't have a band name yet. You know, we we got we recorded it in Athens, Georgia, where Tupelo had just done March sixteenth through twentieth, which was right. John Keane's studio. Right. So that's why we used him because I just worked with him, you know, or just been around him, and uh, and so we went right back there, and we, but but he, it, it all happened so fast. He did not even know that I was bringing a band. We huh. we and we got we got snowed out on the way down there. We had five days to record. Two of them we were were spent sleeping in the car when we got stuck in Superstorm '93 in the South. Okay. It was like right on the way down. It was just a massive ice storm hit the whole south. And so two of our five days got used up just being stuck, like in in Ringgold, Georgia. And we finally got there. Yes. We finally got there on the the third day, about quarter after three in the afternoon. We made it there. And we get there, and John Keene has the studio set up as if I'm going to do this just me and an acoustic guitar and a banjo. 
You know, there's a huh. stool and a microphone and a microphone for the instrument, and that's how the studio is set up. He had no idea I was even coming with a band. So then, like, wow. the the rest of that afternoon was spent reconfiguring the studio. Tom Ray was, like, like writing out the chord changes and setting them on a music stand so he could, like, play as, you know, playing it on the fly. We had to do everything so quick. We did all the music in one day, all the vocals the second day, and then we mixed it on the third day. And that was it. <laughs> Kids, that's how it was done back in the day. Uh-huh. <laughs> now, um, obviously, that was released at the beginning of, of 94. Is that correct? Or I think that's right. right. That sounds sounds about right. I don't remember if it came out in 93 or 94. I'd have to, I don't remember. And when um, when it came out, I mean, you... You started to draw some pretty um, uh, good praise on that. I mean, it, it struck a chord. It was, yeah, that was a little bit surprising. I, I wasn't really expecting. I didn't even know what I was expecting. I was still uh, in the panic of, 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 you know, just trying to get it together, you know. And it was, it was like so. That was a little surprise. Yeah, that was that was kind of like, oh wow, that's kind of nice. So that the, was cool. The manager for the for Uncle Tupelo at that time, who you talked about getting you a record deal, was Tony Margarita. And Correct. Tell me, tell me a little bit about what kind of effect he had on you. Well, Tony was like my, my you know, one of, from just from the two, meeting him through the Uncle Tupelo guys, I, I love Tony. I, I would go to his house and just hang out, you know. We would sit around uh-huh. and barbecue and drink beer and, and, and whatever. And so it was like, you know, he was actually – one of my better friends in those days. And he right. actually, you know, managed us at the start. You know, right. he, he was the first, he, he he did the first album. And, uh, oh. yeah. And, and that, but I was, I was just, it, it seemed like you guys and uncle Tupelo, uh, Tony was able to kind of maneuver things to get you guys involved in a lot of projects. Would you, would you agree with that? Yeah. He was real good at that stuff. I was like, I, I don't know how, or I don't know. I don't even really know when he did it, but he did it, you know, <laughs> and and he was he was just real good at that. Right, yeah. because because your first connection to to um Bloodshot was being on the one of those first uh, compilations that they did, right? Uh I I I believe it. <laughs> it's like I don't re- I really don't remember a lot of stuff. There was a lot of little things like that that happened back then. Uh-huh. And and that that would that totally sounds right to me. That makes perfect sense. And then you went to New York City to make your next album. Yep. And um, what was the name of that producer guy? What was his name? Oh, that producer guy. That we we what it was <laughs> was we our first album was on Eastside Digital Records, as was right. the second. And but the head guy of Eastside Digital was friends with Eric Amble. Okay. Right. And I knew who he, Eric Amble. I knew who his name was because I was like a big Morels fan back in the right. time. Mm-hmm. And the first time I ever saw him was I had gone with Scott Taylor to Heartbreak Hotel in St. Louis to see the Morels. Like they used to play there like once a month or something. We would go every time. Uh-huh. And this one night we went, which I always remember the night, was the debut world premiere on KSHE of ZZ Top Eliminator. <laughs> All right? There you go. So me and Scott Taylor sat in the car and waited till Eliminator was over to go into the Heartbreak Hotel to see the Morels. But they had a little sign up there. 
uh, actually, I, the guy told us at the door when we came in, he said, the Morales had to cancel tonight, but we have another band we think you'll like. They're called the Dell Lords, and it's uh, five bucks. And if you don't like them, I'll give you your money back. There so you we go. Thought, yeah, I thought you can't beat that deal. So we <laughs> saw the Dell Lords and, and thought they were just fantastic. So I, I instantly found out who they, you know, it's like that was, I, I met, I might have just passingly said hello to Eric that night. But anyway, I always remembered who he was. He was the guy in the Dell Lords, you know, it was like right. that, they were cool. They were a great band, whatever. And Scott Taylor, you know, like researched and found out as much as he could because he was that guy in those days. Right. And then, uh, then like Eric came back with it was the ultimate dream gig for me. He came back with Roscoe's Gang, which at that time was the Del Lord. I mean, the the Morels. Morels. You know? Right. So I saw them at Off Broadway, and that was the first time I ever talked to Eric Amble was was at that show because I I just thought they were stupendous, and. uh but anyway, long story short, when Steve Daly said Eric Amble, he sent him our first album, and Eric was interested in, in working with us. And that was real exciting because that was the first famous guy I knew of that was interested in us. Right. So so he came to our first show ever we played in New York, which was, you know, another blizzard hit us, and hardly anybody came to the show, but he came. <laughs> And he said, "Yeah, I'd love to do your second album, you know, if you if you got you know whatever." And I was just like gung ho for it. I was like, "Man, I know this guy. This guy is cool. This guy makes cool music." I didn't even know that he was the original guitarist for Joan Jett at this time. Okay, right. didn't right. even know that yet. I was just totally thinking knowing him from from the Dell Lords. So I was like, "Yeah, heck yeah, I would love to do that." So that's how. We hooked up. It was through Steve Daly at Eastside Digital, and then Eric coming to the first gig, and and so yeah, it was time to make the second album, and so that's what we were going to do. That was very exciting because we were going to make it in New York City. We had never spent any any like extended time in New York City. You know, I'd always been I had been there with Uncle Tupelo, but it was just in and out. You know, go in and then leave. This was going to be like two weeks in New York City with this famous guy. And it was like, whoa. You know, it was starting to feel like the big time or something. Right. Well, it was about to be. Listen, yeah. Brian, let me let me check everything on this, and I'll call you right back, okay? And we'll, All right. We'll do the rest of this. Okay. Yeah. Uh, so, so, Brian, when you made um, – the the Brooklyn side, which was your second album, uh, that was actually supposed to come out on Eastside Digital. Is that right? Right, and it did. It actually did. Uh -huh. In ninety, that one came out in nineteen ninety four in the fall. Right. Uh huh. Yeah. And um, in fact, I remember um, having you and Tom Parr um, over at my apartment and drinking beer and talking about Carlene Carter. And about this amazing producer guy who had who had just basically opened up the world for you because he had uh, told you to drink wine instead of beer <laughs> on a certain track. Right, right, wine, wine, <laughs> Spanish wine for rockabilly songs. And you were just like that just made all the difference, man. That oh yeah, that yep, changed it everything. Did. <laughs> but uh, but soon after it was released, then um, Atlantic started calling. Tell me how that happened. That was one of those deals where it was like you know another one of those roots rock scares. You know, it was like it was like all of a sudden 
all the writers were talking about it. It was like going to be a big thing, and all the major labels were like signing up their their bands, you know, like like it was Warner, like Sire, wasn't it? Yeah, that got Uncle Tupelo. Right. And I really think Atlantic was the only one that didn't have one, uh-huh. and so and, and so they were you know hot on the. They were late to the game with it, but they were still looking for one, and and they discovered us, you know, uh-huh. somehow along the way, and uh, so they worked out a deal with Eastside Digital. They actually uh, licensed it from them for seven years. I don't know the, the technical details of it, but anyway, it ended up being an Atlantic record. Uh-huh. It, you know, it, it started out as Eastside Digital, but then Atlantic took it over later. And then we went we went on to make another record for Atlantic, and that's that's as long as that lasted. But that one was like Eastside Digital, and turned it turned into Atlantic along the way. And when all of that happened, you got some additional push on the radio. Is that right? Yep, yep, yeah. Atlantic Atlantic had like the radio guy. You know, it was like so. That's when I learned how it all worked. <laughs> it's like you know. I'm not going to like pull the beard off Santa Claus here, but I learned how it worked. And uh and uh yeah, it was like boom, you know, we were we were on the radio when 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 it first happened, it was it was pretty shocking. It was like, you know, we were we were and they they sent it to rock radio. Like Radar Gun was the first single. Right. And they were putting it on on the stations that played AC/DC and stuff. And then right. you would hear it. The first time I ever heard it, we were in Pontiac, Michigan. And and I had the radio on in the van, and and I heard "Ain't Talking About Love," and then right after that was over, Radar Gun came on, and I was like, "Oh my god!" It was like you know that scene in that thing you do. <laughs> like we're we're going we're it's going to happen. We're going to be famous, and uh, and it was going good. It was going good, and you know, it was it was the most requested song on Dallas's biggest rock station. You know, it was uh-huh. it was doing great. And uh, and and you know, big things were happening. We were flying all over the place from one radio convention to another, meeting all these people, playing like these little you know three song gigs in you know weird little places for radio conventions all over. Like you know, Atlanta one day, Boulder, Colorado the next day. Just you know, it was like a jet setting you know kind of time. And uh, then. The Atlantic Records decided to close down the division that signed. Oh wow! <laughs> so like you know, it was like it was like the plane blew up on on the ascent. It was like you know we were going up and and, and rising, and then boom! It was like not only did they, you know, when they shut down the division, everyone that was behind us and worked for us were gone. It was like they were just completely gone. So yeah, it was like poof, boom, and and and. And the instant that it was shut down was the instant it went off the radio. You know, it was just like out of gas, you know, you're done, boom, over. Uh-huh. But we were still under some sort of contract to them. So we had to sit around and wait to see what they were going to do. You know, are they going to drop us? Are they going to, what are they going to do? They, the division that signed us, which was TAG, the Atlantic Group, didn't, no longer existed. And, you know, that took forever. It was like, it was like, we had to wait for, for months and months and months and months seeing what they were going to do. 
And they finally decided they were going to just keep us and bump us up to, like, Atlantic proper, you know, okay? Now you get the same logo as Aretha Franklin on your records. Right, you know? right. <clears throat> and and be, believe it or not, I was not excited about that. Why not? Because Well, because I, I realized that nobody there knows who the hell we are. You know, it's right. like... It's like all of a sudden we were just like these inherited, you know, kids from 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 somewhere else dumped into the big old machine. And I've always like been more of a fan of being a big fish in a small pond kind of a thing. Right. Mm-hmm. And and I just I just it smelled like failure to me. <laughs> it was like I don't know if this is going to work out. And 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 we went ahead and they let us make a record, which turned out to be 24 hours a day. Right. Which was a very weird thing because it was major label budget and we were basically doing the same stuff we did before for five thousand dollars, except now everything costs like two hundred and fifty thousand dollars. Wow. Well it's like it's like it's like an aspirin in the hospital. It's like it's a major label, so everything costs more and, and they spend more. And it was like these phenomenal amounts of money being thrown around and like nobody from the record company was like calling in to check up on us. Uh, you know, <laughs> it was right. like it was like it was just really kind of crazy and fishy, and and the whole thing seemed completely weird. And we managed to make the record in the middle of it. You know, it, it didn't freak us out too hard to not be able to get that accomplished. So right. then we made twenty four hours a day, and then we had to see what they were going to do with it when it was finished. And uh-huh. and that took a long time. You know, it's a major label. It was like things just go slow, you know, and it was like, so we didn't know what the heck they were going to do. And and at this time, this is when we started making dumb mistakes was around this time. So now we're on Atlantic. We got the major label. We figure, okay, we need bigger management. We need a bigger booking agency. And, you know, we sort of had a little clout to do it at that time because Brooklynside had done so well and we were on Atlantic. I remember I talked to a lot of guys. I talked to Dave Matthews, manager, on the phone. You know, I thought there was a lot of guys that were interested at that time. Uh-huh. And we ended up going with this guy, Mike Renault, who I met, and he, he was the guy I liked the best of the guys I met. He was out in L.A. So we got him. You know, he immediately got us on the John Fogarty tour. You know, it was like, it was you know, things were, were kind of moving forward. But then we hooked up with the CAA, like which is the biggest booking agency there is. And after the Fogarty tour was over, after the Fogarty tour was over, we couldn't get a gig. It was like it was like you know they wouldn't return clubs phone calls. I, I was having clubs call me at my apartment to try to right. book us because no one from CAA would call them back because you know they want. You know, they want 10% of a of a $250,000 gig. They don't want 10% of a $1,500 gig. It's the same amount of work. Right. So, you know, there we were, the smallest fish in the biggest, in the, in the biggest pond. And it was like, we, we couldn't, there we were on a major label with big time manager. And after the Fogarty tour, we could not get a damn gig. <laughs> it wow. was crazy. It was, it was just insane and the whole time was insane it's like when the, when 24 hours a day came out it was like it was released in the middle of the nationwide ups strike uh-huh. and this and this is while we were on the fogarty tour so like none of the towns had the new cd 
It was like we didn't have it. Nobody had it. It was it was like this chronic. It was almost like spinal tapish in a way. Well, and in the middle of that, or or in the same era, speaking of spinal tapish, you had the famous puppet incident. Oh yeah, that was that was probably a, was that then or was it a little earlier than that? that I think was, that was a little earlier than that. Yeah, that was that was. Tell us about that. Oh yeah, that was on. That was our. Uh, our publicist got us that gig in New York. It was some morning show that was, I don't know what. Right. Was it? I don't even remember. I, I don't know. Yeah. I think it was a very early. Yeah. Early. Very early. Yeah. Very early morning show. And we were going to go on and sing a few songs. We had played a gig in New York City the night before. And it was like we had to be there at like five o'clock in the morning for the show. So by the time we were done with the gig in New York, it was already three o'clock in the morning. So we weren't going to go to bed. So, right. so we just you know kept drinking and stayed up. And then we went to the show and we sang a song. And then all of a sudden, there's like like it's like a morning zoo radio kind of vibe, like all around us. Um, right. You know, and there's like a there's like a puppet. You know, there's a little friggin' puppet. You know, like like over my shoulder. And just, I just was, I just had it. It was like I, I cracked. I just got up and left. <laughs> Everybody <laughs> came with me, and we just walked off live television. And it was, it was, it was, you know, it was kind of a big deal for a while with with certain people. But you know, we we survived it in the long run. The host of that show, I, I didn't even know who he was. It was Tom Bergeron. Okay. Know, who, yeah, who's who, who now dancing with the stars, dude? So anyway, he was the host, and and. You know, I guess the the cool thing about it is when we walked off live TV, they replaced us with Dennis DeYoung, <laughs> who who happened to be in town doing something on Broadway. So so yeah, so I don't know. It was it was crazy. That was typical of the era that time. Right. You know, drunken drunken foolishness. Well, at least you caught the tail end of the of that kind of rock and roll stuff. That that's an yeah. opportunity been a part of. When you, how did you get on the PBS thing, the Mississippi River of Song? I'm trying to remember how that happened. I think they contacted us. I think it was a guy. It was the the, the guy who actually filmed it. What was his name? Uh-huh. I can't remember his name anymore. But I somehow he got a hold of us, and I don't know how he found out about us. I can't remember. It was so long ago. Uh-huh. But they totally came to us, and they, they were doing like it was a it was a pilot film to to get the funding to make this thing, uh-huh. and uh, and so we were one of the first things he filmed to to get the funding to go on with the series, and and he actually got the funding off of what he filmed off of us, so it was it was a successful venture. So and, uh, and has that song ever been released? What's that? The River Roland song. Get down what? Get down river? Yeah, the Get Down River. Yeah, it was it was actually on Leftovers, which okay. is the EP that was songs that did not end up on Twenty Four Hours a Day. Uh huh. So yeah, it was it was released on that. Uh huh. Well, that that is still one of my favorite of your songs. And then uh, in, the, in the middle of it, um, you've got the great quote: "I call it rock and roll. Everyone else calls it country." Yeah. <laughs> And isn't there a little bit of that that just goes a long way in the way that you kind of viewed your songwriting and everyone else does? I mean, yeah. isn't that a little bit prophetic? I think so. I really do think so. Because you know. I hear you more, I mean, I hear you as, 
is a very good pop songwriter as well as anything else. And I mean, yeah. he has country overtones, but you know, Eric Amble always says that he felt like he was here in Fleetwood Mac when he heard I'll be coming around. Yeah. 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 I yeah. mean, you know, that, that stuff is in there. I've always loved that kind of music. So it, it's, it's, it runs deep in there. Uh-huh. Mm-hmm. All that, you know, pop, pop, rock music of the 70s you know it's like i love that stuff right so yeah but you know, i also love you know waylon jennings i also love ronnie van zant you know i also right. love the ramones so it's a, it's a big mix that's hard to figure out what it is and it's been hard to sell for 20 over 20 <laughs> years well it, it has its crests and valleys it has, it has yep. points. when they when they did the reissues of your first two albums a couple of years ago did uh, what did what did you see out of that? How did that feel? That was great. That was like really, really something that we wanted to do for a long time. It took that long to get the rights to the first two records back because they were they were just lost in in like legal mumbo jumbo because uh-huh. the first out because Eastside Digital actually went out of business, right? And they still they still had our first album, and then Atlantic had a license on the Brooklyn side for seven years, but by the time the seven years was up, Eastside Digital was out of business. Uh-huh. So it like ended up in like Atlantic possession with like this unclear kind of ownership kind of thing to it. And it took, you know, we never really had the money to chase it down, you know, and didn't even know if it would be worth it, especially not later over the course of time as the internet came along and started making albums, it seemed to be like a little bit of a crazy idea, you know, because yeah. people weren't really buying CDs anymore. It took years and years and years, and finally we just got them back. It was it was pretty simple in the end. It was kind of like our lawyer sent them a letter that said, we're taking it. If you have a problem, contact me by this amount of time, and right. they never did. So it was it was – it just – you know, it was this big long ordeal that just ended on ended as nothing, uh-huh. and then we and then we got them back. And by this time, we had signed with Bloodshot Records, and uh, we took them straight to them and came up with the idea to just you know have them reissue them as one package because it was it was just you know a thrill to to like actually have our first two records back. They were lost forever. Yeah. Well, and. Um... And you know, it seemed to get a, a great response. The, there was yeah. a lot of press around that, and, yep. and it seemed like. Do you think that kind of grease the wheels to the to the success of the new album? Uh, it couldn't have hurt. Let's <laughs> <laughs> put it that way. It, it well, couldn't the, have hurt. The new album is has essentially had the best response of any since the Brooklyn side. Isn't that right? Yeah. Yeah. It's it that is that is very very shocking and and very very. A very happy thing, you know. It's like I'm so happy that it did good. It's well, just like, and and you've kind of chronicled online your different approach to songwriting that you've taken, and so what's involved in that? Well, the 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 diff there are several major differences with this record that I don't know if they attributed to the success of it or not. You know, it could just be. In, have nothing to do with it uh-huh. but there are several several huge differences one it's the first album we ever made where i am a writer on every single song on it uh-huh. and and soul writer on a lot of it you know there's only a few co-written songs on this record 
Right. And, and, and so that is completely unusual. It's never happened before. You know, I always had, had like songs with, at least with Scott Taylor involved. And, right. and, and then always like, I, I probably never had more than three or four of my own songs on, on any one album at any given time. Right. And it was, you know, that, that's the way it always was. I and mean, then we would have Bob Parr songs we would use. We would have, you know, songs Mark would come up with. And it just happened this time that, you know, we're older now. Everybody's got, you know, entirely different lives, you know, and, and just nobody had the stuff. I was the only guy that had it. Uh-huh. And it, it, and, and, and I had enough to make a record out of, and it had been so long since we made a record that everybody was, you know, excited to do it. So uh-huh. it was so just by default because everybody was so dying to make a record and and was so distracted in their lives and kids and all the stuff we didn't used to have. Right. That, you know, they were not only thrilled to make a record; they were perfectly happy that I had written all the songs. For them. <laughs> it was like. And you know, and I'm always nervous about that. I don't, I don't want that to be the case. It just happened to be the case this time. And right. I like the songs, and and everybody in the band seemed to like the songs. And so that was that's the hugest difference of this album, is it's, uh, you know, it, it comes pretty much solely from my viewpoint. Well, so you also went to Nashville to do some of this song. Yeah, right. That had nothing to do with this album. That was I went down to Nashville to. <laughs> hook up with my friends, you know, the Henningsons, the, the, the new country songwriters. Right. And I was going down there just to write a song with them in hopes of getting a country hit like they had. Right. <laughs> you know, right. like get me in on that so I can make the money and pay my house off, you know, or whatever. Right. And we got we got together and, and we wrote a song and we all loved the song, but we all knew it was not new country material, you know, right. but, but but we we all loved it. And they wanted to record it, but their album was into like all sorts of weird, nebulous, you know, place at that time. They were they were in the process of losing their deal with Sony, you know, so they didn't even know if their album was ever going to get finished. It was very much like us on the Atlantic days. Right. So they were still working as writers down there, but they had a, a, an album of their own. So So they wanted to cut it, and then their thing fell apart, and then... I just said, "Hey, can we cut that?" You know, and and they said, "Sure, go ahead." So so that is how that one ended up on the record. It was intended, you know, it was never intended to be a bottle rocket song, but in fact, it was hard to turn into a bottle rocket song because I didn't think I could sing it. But uh-huh. uh, but we did it somehow. Woohoo! Gunga din. <laughs> and and when you um, were were singing with them, when you were singing with them a few weeks ago. Um, when you were asked uh, by Steve St. Cyr to come up with a, a song that kind of emphasized your roots, um, you chose a song from the second Leonard Skinner album. That's right. Yeah. <laughs> How about that? Yeah. Tell yeah. me tell me why that was your choice. for Well, because I thought it was a good idea at the time. <laughs> I realized I forgot the second verse. <laughs> but thankfully, you remembered it and sort of got me through it. I I, I, re- <laughs> there. I really hadn't given it any forethought, but it just seemed like, you know, the right thing at the time. It seemed like the right song because it really is. That's, that is a huge song on me, you know. And Ronnie Van Zandt, he's one of those great mysterious guys that, that you know, he, he 
he was basically a country singer in a rock band was what he was right. and right. and and that naturally appealed to me because I've always had like like I've had one foot in both doors for so long that yeah. that so yeah that's sort of like it was just yeah there's no there was no real like thought out reason why I chose that when I was just a spur of the minute thing but I'm I'm glad I did I wish I would have done it better <laughs> well I, I almost it. made it. <laughs> um, tell me, uh, going a little back in time, tell me what caused Coffee Creek to happen. Good question. I'm sure alcohol. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sure it was a drunken idea, you know. It was the Uncle Tupelo guys plus me, and we uh-huh. were, you know, I'm sure we were listening to a lot of country music at that time and probably just thought we should make a country band and, I think it was Jay that came up with the name Coffee Creek. I don't know. We 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 had like these running jokes of, you know, country and coffee and all this stuff. But we you know, it was just one of those things that just popped up probably sitting around a table drinking somewhere. Yeah, there was I I, I get to attend a couple of those shows and that was really uh, I mean, those things were rock shows and country shows at the exact same time. <laughs> Yeah, we couldn't help it. We we tra- we were trying to be country, but it just never <laughs> seemed to work out. Did uh, was there ever ever any talk about recording that together or nah, like that? nah? That was that was very much just a just a fun you know off the friggin' off the clock side project. That was uh-huh. purely purely just for fun. We were just lucky to be there. Um, yep. I just have a, a couple more questions for you. Um, how much, how much of your songwriting is influenced by the guitars you're playing at the time? Is there any difference between the PV days or the, you know the Fender days or the Rickenbacker days? It's 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 influenced hugely. It, it really is, truly. And it's uh-huh. funny that that ninety eight percent of all songs I've ever written have been written on an electric guitar, not an acoustic guitar. Uh-huh. You know, it's like hardly ever do I write a song on an acoustic guitar. Uh-huh. Always an electric, and uh, yeah, I've never, I never was able to write a song on a PV. It was like when I had PVs, yeah. no songs came out of those guitars. It was like I'd have uh-huh. to pick up, pick up a Telecaster to make it happen. Really? It was just like they were just, they were too workmanlike. It was like trying to write a song on a Black and Decker drill or something. You know, it was like I, I couldn't get. They worked great on stage, but they were just, they didn't really. Inspire me to do anything when I play them around the house. What um, Telecasters what, did. What made you go through the TV stage? That was a political move. <laughs> it was, I it was actually that. That is the exact answer that I wanted. <laughs> it was. It was actually a, like a like my my. It was my view. My shot towards patriotism after after nine eleven. There you go. It was. It was like when when 9/11 happened, I was you know freaked out like everybody else, you know, right. and uh-huh. and pretty much the day it was like I was just trying to sort out what the hell just happened, and it wasn't like might have even been the very next day after it uh-huh. that I started thinking I I need to play like the most American guitar there is, <laughs> and I tried to think about what that is compared to worse compared to what I could afford to buy, you know. Right. 
Right. And it was like all of a sudden, like the light came on over my head. It's like, holy crap, it's a TV. You know, it, it's got to be an old TV, and, and, and I can totally afford it. And then that just, you know, blew up like an exploding cigar. It's like I was getting them so cheaply that I just – I actually became a hoarder. It was ridiculous. It was like <laughs> – the PV years, it was crazy. I had nine T60s. I it was just, I was getting these things for like eighty and ninety bucks a piece. It was, it was. I couldn't pass them off. I felt like I was saving them. You know, it was like it's like they're having a little abandoned life in a pawn shop. Uh-huh. There's another one. I'm going to take it home and, and give it a good life. And, and I ended then, up with so many. I ended up with so many of those big plastic PV cases. That they were they were what was running me out of the house, not the guitars. I actually had one too many. I didn't have a guitar to go in it, so I actually just threw one away. I put it in the dumpster because it was, I was I was like a PV millionaire. I had every damn model they made. I had every kind of amp. It was stupid. <laughs> well, um, but then you met your true love in a guitar in in your Rickenbacker. And oh yeah. How, oh how did, yeah. How did that come well, about? I had one. 20 years ago, I had one, it was, you know, I always wanted one, always, 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 and I finally got one years ago, it was when the Brooklyn side was blowing up, and we were out on the East Coast, and Tom Parr, I couldn't get a credit card in those days, I had nothing to go by, but Tom Parr could, and he got a Sam Ash credit card, uh-huh. and, and and we were in Cherry Hill, New Jersey, and at that time, a brand-new Rick 360 was $699. Wow. Okay. Yeah. So he let me get it on his credit card, and it was a one-year same-as-cash deal. So uh-huh. I had one one year to pay it off, which I thought I could do. Turns out I couldn't, and I had to <laughs> sell it. But <clears throat> but I kept it for the full year, but I loved it. It was like it, it immediately influenced my songwriting. That is the reason that like songs like – Gravity fails, you know, have have like a different kind of music than anything we'd done up till that point. Yeah. And and stuff like uh and, and like I Wanna Come Home was written on the written by it was like they were I immediately knew that they helped me write songs. And then I got rid of it, I had to sell it, you know, one year after I got it to pay Tom Parr off. And then I never got another one. It was like it was like the years just went by and I, I always wanted one. And I would deny them and tell myself that I don't need one, and I would get every other kind of guitar except that one. It was like a like a great denial. I could never come up with the money for it. I was always scared that if I would get it, I'd have to sell it again, you know. And it was like, and then you know, twenty years later, the opportunity came, and I got another one, and bam, you know, the same magic happened. The song started flying out of the damn thing. So it's like somewhere in the great guitar cosmos it's like it is my perfect zodiac match or something it's it's the guitar that makes their their song factories for me tell me this if you were you know if somebody came up to you they didn't have any kind of um idea uh, you know idea of who the bottle rockets were um tell me if you were making them a mixtape five or six songs that you'd make sure to put on there Wow, that's a that's a good one. Just so they just so they'd know who the whole right. band was. Yeah, right. So let's see, five or six songs. Well, you'd have you would have to put thousand dollar car on it. Right. That would have to go on there. You probably would be smart to put Get Down River on there. 
Right. Then then you could put uh, God. What else could you put on there? I'm okay. Oh man, there's too many songs to to do. So let me see what else would I. I would definitely do something off the new record for sure. Put it on there. I'm not sure which one. Uh-huh. Something. Ah oh, man, this is a tough. This is a really hard one. Five or six songs to know who the Bottle Rockets are. God. Let me think about that. Well, I'm going to take one off your hand because I'm going to put ship it on the Frisco. Oh, ship it on the Frisco. There you go. There you go. That'd be that'd be a good. That you know what? That would be a good one. That would that would cover some ground there. Uh huh. And uh, man, what else? You know, I, I you could put oh God, so many. I guess you could put Indianapolis if you wanted to. I don't know if that's one you'd want to, but uh. <laughs> Man, what what else? Good Lord. I mean, you'd have to put something really, really kind of heavy on there, too, whether it be like Brand New Year or, or Alone in Bad Company or, you know, you'd have to kind of show, like, what you're getting into somehow. Yeah. Uh, and then you'd need something kind of quiet, too. Man, it's too hard. This is why nobody can figure out how to sell our album. <laughs> <laughs> it's like every song is false advertising for another one. <laughs> Well, uh, maybe that's something you can think about for a different day, but I sure I sure love the new record. I sure love the old records and um oh, thanks. It's just exciting to get to, you know, see you guys have such a good run with with the, the new record. Yeah, that is exciting. I'm so 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 excited about that. <laughs> so, um well, thank you Brian. Thank you for having uh for us having you on. I've appreciated that. Oh, man. Glad, glad to do it. <laughs> so um, this is Brian Hinneman from the Bottle Rockets, and thank you very much. Uh-huh. <laughs> okay, well, I will get that thing cut up, and I am I am in the infancy of doing this, but, man, I have had the – we've had a bunch of people that want to do it, so I'm really excited yeah. about it. Cool, it, right on. You know, so I'll, I'll make sure Well, I'll that, tell you. I'll oh, tell you this. You – have the most accurate timeline of how this stuff worked out right now because I've I've never remembered it as well as that for anybody else. So you have exclusive rights to the most accurate way things worked out. Well, I just I kind of thought that I could take you through that having kind of been a tangential part of it, you know, and right and knowing a little bit of it, but I I was that's what I was hoping for. I was hoping to kind of cuz you know, when you get on there with somebody that's doing a you know, piece in the newspaper, you know, you're just giving them little blurbs. You're not really exactly over, right. Uh, you know what happened. So I just kind of wanted to take you through the whole thing and see what would come out. Well, it was a good time. <laughs> All right. Well, good. Well, I'll, I'll let you know when it's ready to, to All right. send to the world. Okay. Talk to you All, right. All right. Okay. Thanks. Bye. Bye. DaleWileyShow.com.